Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. There is a good reason why Australia's sovereign wealth fund, the Future Fund, maintains a 16% allocation to private equity. Returns, returns, returns. Private equity and the lucrative returns it offers has traditionally been the restricted domain of institutional investors, off-limit to retail investors. Allison's Jade Private Assets Fund bucks the trend by offering investors exposure to unlisted Australian growth companies. Like private equity, Jade's managers partner with the companies it invests in through board representation. And it's a model that clearly works. As of June this year, the retail fund has returned 14.48% over three years and almost 18% per annum since inception. In today's episode, I sit down with Jane Shaw, one of the portfolio managers of the Jade Fund. Jane didn't take the typical road into funds management. Initially trained as a nurse, she went on to take a number of roles in leadership positions in healthcare organisations. So, appropriately, Jane looks after the healthcare allocation within the Jade Fund. Topics covered today include the evolution of private equity over the last few years, today's deal flow in the space, the first order principles that guide Jane's process, as well as the investment case for Mabel and Prospection, two companies that are shaking things up in the healthcare space. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're already a subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. All right, Jane, thank you so much for joining us on The Rules of Investing. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Most fund managers I speak to, especially on the public assets side, do a commerce degree, they get their CFA and work their way up that ladder. But your background is in the healthcare trenches as a nurse. How did you wind up in asset management? So um, in my family, um, the females were all nurses and uh, my brother was an engineer and uh, there was no choice. Um, my grandparents were all in business and um, I had exposure to business from a very early age, a whole range of different businesses. Um, I would have preferred to be an astronaut at the time, um, but it was nursing was uh, a trade or profe- profession and then after that you could go and do whatever you wanted to do. And then my business career evolved as I went through the business side of nursing and healthcare management. And you've been on some boards? That yes. was that was the bridge. Um, the bridge for me was um, I was the CEO of two private hospitals in southwestern Sydney when I was twenty seven, which was relatively young, and I had three young children at the same time, and I could either move around Australia, or I could diversify, and I actually set up my own business um, from twenty seven to thirty, and I ended up selling that to a US healthcare company, which turned over about $6 billion. So there was a fundamental shift from working in a corporate to actually establishing your own business, um, working in different global healthcare markets, and then selling it to a big US healthcare player. So it was a big shift. um, But then I, I knew I'd never return to the corporate space. And I'd 
uh, continue to build businesses and uh, stay in the trenches. So how does that background in the trenches give you an advantage managing private assets? I think it's you're pretty safe in a, uh, in a corporate. Um, you have a defined role. Whereas in um, building businesses, uh, as a founder, you've got to be innovative, adaptable, flexible. You've got to have a very strong uh, focus on cash flow and you've got to be able to execute and deliver. And I think if you're the founder and it's your money that's funding the business, um, I think your, your disciplined approach is extremely important. How that applies to private markets and what I do now, it's having a healthy respect of capital and cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, um, and, and building businesses. And if some strategies don't work, adapt, move, and uh, find the margin and deliver the service. Well, I'll dig into your process later on, but um, let's talk markets for a moment. How has the private equity space changed since inflation and higher rates have, have come to the fore? So about 18 months ago, um, it was the land of milk and honey, particularly <laughs> in private uh, businesses. Uh, growth was, uh, you know, high growth businesses, good businesses. Uh, most businesses and sectors were actually growing. And it was high growth at the sake of EBITDA margin, really, at that time. So I think now there's more a disciplined approach to getting back to profitability, uh, there's now a healthier respect of cash flow within the business. And businesses um, 18 months ago had more luxuries. And an example of that is if you had a software company, um, you could be more adventurous in your product development, not be as focused on your return. And I think there's evidence to suggest now a lot of the tech companies have reduced their staffing. Um, engineers 18 months ago, very hard to, to find them and they were very expensive. But most tech companies have gone through um, reductions um, without the uh, expense of capital and costs. So fundamental shift in the way actually businesses operate. Um, obviously those businesses that have debt have got uh, their own exposures. And um, yeah, I think there's been a, a strong change in the way businesses are being managed at the moment. So in light of that shift and the fact that money now isn't free, does that necessarily mean that growth is throttled? Is slower growth now the norm? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, if you're an investor 18 months ago and the last 10 years have been great times for investors and um you know, people have made significant returns. Um, however, in the private markets, there's the ability to earn. Um, if you compare back to the public markets, the, I think their annual return is about 7% over the last few years. Um, if you invested in uh, Jade uh, when it was founded in um, 19, 2019, their average return has been about 18%. So the growth in the listed markets is a lot lower than the private markets. And I think some of the changes in the last 18 months, two years, is that um, the returns are in the private companies and 
the mum and dad investors out there have now got exposure to private assets that they haven't had the exposure to in the past. Um, private equity has been a privilege in a way or quite exclusive um, you know, to superannuation funds or the big investment banks. Um, if you're fortunate to be part of that, lucky you. Um, however, the mum and dad investors and the people there that need a return in their own superannuation funds, there's now more products out there for them to invest in 99% of the um, companies in Australia. I mean, 1% of the private companies are listed. 99% are private. And where, where's the wealth being generated? And, it, and if you look at the future fund, I mean, they've got 7% now in listed entities and 17% in private equity. So it shows that there's a shift in terms of where people are putting their money for the returns. And I think going forward, you have to be able to adapt your investment portfolio to where you're going to get those better returns. And as I said earlier, what worked in the past isn't necessarily what's going to work in the future, particularly in these, um, you know, continual changing environments with inflation, debt, and also access to debt is another issue. The banks have really tightened the lending on small business and that's making it very difficult for some of the private um, companies to actually get debt to grow. So I think you'll see um, more opportunities for uh, funds like Jade to invest and back and support the founders to fund their growth because the debt market isn't as available as it was. Do you think the future funds without putting words in their own mouth, their allocation to private assets, do you think that's a function of the returns available in private markets or more just the number of opportunities available? I think it's a mixture of both, but obviously the future fund want the returns. I mean, you know, money talks. Um, so they'll be going where the, uh, where the returns are and also... Um, you know, supporting some of the private companies that actually um, need the growth and the, the opportunity. So, yes, I think you're right on both points. Private equity is where you play. How much dry powder is there at the moment? There's a lot of money out there. Everybody's been cautious. Um, the last 18 months, um, you know, there's quite a lot of, um, I think it's, I can't remember the figures, but it's, 3.5 or 3.8 trillion dollars um, dry powder out there. From my own personal experience, I know that a lot of private equity funds are looking at um, businesses, they're looking at assets and depending where their portfolio is. So between 0 to 10 million, the number of private equity firms that can play in that space is a lot lower. Um, However, the bigger firms that are looking for the $100 million checks and more, I think they're finding it very difficult or challenging to find the right business with the growth trajectory and also from a valuation perspective. And I think that's one of the biggest shifts in the last 18 months and that's valuations. And people, some people still um, think they're going to get 20 times revenue. Um, so that adjustment to new valuations and, and value. Are the deals out there to put that dry powder to work? Um, I think the deals are out there and there are good deals. Um, where there's adversity, there's always opportunity. 
Um, however, it's finding you've got to be highly selective in this market. There's a lot of people um, who are burning through cash. Um, you know, they're on less than a year of cash available. So that puts them in a very vulnerable position. You've got a lot of down rounds. So people that raised capital two, three years ago, are raising now at a lower valuation. A lot of that that is being done behind closed doors and uh, obviously the issue in terms of valuation as well and revaluations in these markets. Off air, you gave a great anecdote of, <laughs> that I have to bring up of knowing uh, if deals are being done and that's to essentially count the cars in the car park of Shifley Tower. Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so when I've been involved in a few transactions in the past, you know when the investment bankers and the private equity guys are working overnight because all the cars are still in the car park. So <laughs> it's a really good indicator. And um, most uh, financial institutions are back in the office full time now. Um, but certainly last year, um, the car park indicator was a lot lower. <laughs> um, if you look at the basic KPIs. Um, however, there are, particularly in the last three to six months, there's a lot more due diligence work being undertaken. Um, I think people are being far more selective, far more disciplined in their approach. You've got time now to look at assets. Um, the competitive tension isn't there. Um, everybody wants um, high growth sectors. So health um, is reasonably recession-proof. Um, there's a lot of um, attractive indicators in there. AI, a lot of disruptive technology, government funding, diversification of revenue, models can be taken offshore. So they're probably more attractive sectors than um, some of the hospitality side. So I think discipline around your sector, your growth and your market is going to be fundamental. I love that mental image of Jane Shaw in the <laughs> shadows of a car park like Deep Throat, <laughs> just counting cars. Uh, uh. Seeing who's uh, working and who's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to your process. Um, tell us about the Jade Fund. What's it all about? Well, any, uh, any business is really about its people. And um, the Jade Fund has, um, has a great team of highly experienced people. Um, they've all worked in various sectors, various industries. And so I've worked with most of the private equity firms in, um, in Sydney and also offshore. And I've been privileged to work with some great people. You know, I've worked with Tim Sims from PEP. I've worked with the Quadrant team, Marcus Darville and Chris Hadley. Great minds very bright. Um, the J team, everybody is very experienced. We've got a good balanced team um, of experience in a cross range of sectors. And um, you can't underestimate that experience, particularly in markets now. Everybody can run a business when it's going well. And so um, we have a very disciplined approach. Um, we have a very uh, respectful and direct approach, which is very important. And in terms of looking at assets and a functioning team, I think that when you're identifying potential opportunities, the founders who are gonna, you're going to partner with long-term look at the, dy the dynamics of your team. So there's nine people in the, um, in the J team across eight assets. And 
normally two of us sit on the different healthcare boards or the, the tech boards. And um, it really is about discipline, execution and leaning in and identifying the right opportunities. Um, but you can't underestimate that experience. What first order principles guide your process? What are your northern stars, I suppose? Yeah. Again, it always comes down to the people. So you can have the best business, the best data. And for me, it's about alignment of values. And um, when you meet a company, you assess the management team. Um, For me, it's very important in terms of what they've contributed, in terms of whether it's sweat equity, you know, nobody can mortgage their house, but they're actually committed to the company it's their purpose and so um that is number number one for me because you're going to be partnering with these people for the next three to five years and it's a partnership and when you're starting your dd you know obviously everybody wants a really well-defined shareholder agreement but you don't want that agreement to ever come out and ever have to use it and so um and businesses, you do have your challenging times. You know, you do lose customers. You do need to reinvest more. Um, and in adversity, you know, you've got to have the ability to lead, lean in with the founders and work with them and try and get solutions and not to panic. So in this market, I know from past experience, people will be panicking. There will be founders falling out with their partnerships. So it's really important from my perspective that you know the rules of engagement, how you're going to function uh, in the good, the bad and the ugly, which which happens in business, hopefully not as often as you like. And in this market, uh, high cash burn, redundancies, um, some of the negative sides of um, running a business, which aren't particularly pleasant, um, are when you have to really pull together from an equity and founding team. So I heard an interesting statistic the other day. Elon Musk got rid of 80% of his staff, 20% left, had no material impact on, uh, on the company. He thought that was all luxury. That is going on in some of the businesses in Sydney right now, but not being reported on. It sounds like that inside track gives amazing backstage access. Um, But on the other hand, do you risk getting too emotionally involved in these companies and the people that run them? Yeah, I think that is a fine balance. And that's where it comes down to the rules of engagement. When you're meeting founders, working with them, you agree on the terms. I mean, you don't want a board that's micromanaging because you're just going to make the founders claustrophobic and really upset them and not allow them to get on with delivering delivering and executing on their business plan. So that is very important. However, if there needs to be a change at the board level, you've got to make sure the board's functional and adding value. All the directors have to add value. You can't just be turning up once a month and, you know, giving an opinion and leaving. And Each different director should have an area of expertise, whether it's about sales, product development, execution, so you can assist. Um, Prospection's just brought in a new chair, um, and he's got significant experience in product development in software companies in all the markets that Prospection is in, so America, Japan, and Australia. He's been there, he's seen it all before, he knows where the product needs to fit, he can 
add value and give guidance to some members of the product development team. And I think that level of maturity, it's about mentoring. It's not telling people how to do it. It's about you know, being able to uh, answer the questions and uh, provide guidance on product development and positioning. Despite that, um, I imagine you've had uh, quite a few hard conversations with management. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, I guess it comes down to um, respect of capital and cash flow. And again, if we go back to 18 months ago, Capital was very easy to get from a listed market perspective. Everybody was listing. And also in the private markets, uh, there were these wonderful valuations and people could just uh, get readily access to capital. Um, I think the disciplined approach and respect to the use of capital is really coming into its own now. And so board is like, what's the return on that capital? You You want to develop that product? What's the return on investment going to be? A return on invested capital. So it's um, really important um, right now that the board and the management are aligned on where the value is because you've got to come to profitability. You could, you've got to have high growth and you've got to have be cash flow positive. So that's a big shift for a lot of the organisations. A lot of organisations are burning, you know, one and a half, two million dollars a month that doesn't give them much runway for cash flow. So in the Jade Fund, um, all the businesses are on track for to be cash flow positive. Um, there's a number of them are already and others are working towards it now. What does the earnings runway look like for the companies uh, Jade invests in? Okay, so in the, the Jade portfolios, in terms of when we're going through our due diligence, we look for growth between 20 to 30% particularly in this market. About 18 months ago, you were looking at a minimum of about 20%, 25% growth across the um, various companies. But we've been more realistic at the moment and the budgets going forward is about 20 to 30%. And if you look at the, um, the earnings growth in the listed market, on average, it's about 2.5%. So there's great disparity between the listed uh, and private company markets. You're on the board of Mabel and Prospection. Let's take those companies in turn. What do they do and what's the investment case as you see it? Okay. So um, Mabel is uh, a marketplace and what it offers is if you are in the NIS participant or aged care and you need an Italian-speaking nurse that can administer uh, insulin, you can go onto the uh, Mabel website and you can find a carer to come into your home and offer those services. What does that mean? It means um, you've got choice of actually who's going to look after you. So if you don't like nurse number one, you can trial them out. Whereas in other organisations, you know, you get the, the nurse and you've got no involvement in their choice. If I've got limited uh, limited money, the hourly rate is set by the actual worker. So they have the control of the hourly rate and the hourly rate in Mabel it starts from about $34 an hour. 
So that's very good for the uh, worker. They set the rates and the shifts that they want to do. And what it means for um, people requiring aged care support, if they're on certain packages, they can get more hours of care for what they need. So it's a two-way marketplace. It's um, set up within all the regulatory requirements. Um, I went onto that board about four years ago as a nurse. Having been the director of nursing, um, it's really important that you have the right regulatory framework, risk management framework. You've got people going into um, your home doing the most basic needs. So quality standards, um, extremely important. So um, Mabel's been a a very uh, fast-growing company. A uh, very innovative platform. Uh, the management team there, Tony Chiara as the CEO, um, it, it was co-founded uh, with Peter Scott. Tony is now the CEO. And um, in terms of work capacity, Tony is up there in terms of CEOs. He's very disciplined in his approach. And he's got a great team of people around him. The product is great full of innovation. Sounds like they're really democratising the interface between patient and professional. They're giving far more choice. So um, particularly after COVID, who wants to go into aged care? Certainly not me. Um, and the business has a framework that you would, um, that I would want for my own parents or I'm getting older. Um, you know, you want the um, regulatory rigour around it but on a commercial and business side, it's a fantastic business. The growth is there, um, very strong growth in all segments with aged care, NDIS, um, packages, and it's a quality service. And if consumers don't like it, they don't have to have those carers in their home. So it's continuing to grow. There are other Me Too organisations, but I don't believe they have the same uh, regulatory rigour around the, the clinical needs of those clients. And I don't know if you mentioned before, are they profitable? Yes, they are profitable. Okay. Let's move on to prospection. Prospection. I love that name. I know. <laughs> um, well, prospection. So data is the new gold, as they say, and um, particularly in healthcare. So prospection is an innovative um, data analytics company. And in simplistic terms, what it does is it aggregates data from hospital providers, PBS data, amalgamates it, and then it has its own proprietary algorithms that can look at health outcomes. So I'll give you an example. That's probably the easiest thing to do. So if somebody has uh, back pain through PBS data, they normally go on Panadine Fort, they can track your health outcomes from having right iliac fossa pain to basically predicting when you could get prostate cancer. Then they can look at your survivability rates on which doctor and which uh, pharmacology you're on and look at the different um, scenarios. So this data is being used now for different um, evidence of healthcare and healthcare outcomes. So, so what does that mean? Data... Uh, Data is very important on an individual level. Obviously, insurers are interested in it. Pharma, um, pharmacology companies are interested in the data. But data is going to be the evidence that you need on survivability rates. And in the old days, 
if we all had lung cancer, we'd all get the same treatment. Now we know, you know, we can all react to different antibiotics. We all react to different um, chemotherapy drugs. So this data is what's going to be the key and the glue um, to health outcomes for the future and how it's actually utilised. So that's the... um, I could suggest you all go onto the Prospection website and have a look at the models that they've got there in different, um, you know, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and some of the more rare diseases. And at a more important level, it can look at how, um, literally, how different doctors, different drugs can impact on your survivability from five to ten years based on your postcode. That only comes from data. So it's very exciting. Um Data um, is, uh, and the use of it, is fundamental to improved health outcomes. And that will be interrelated into all healthcare, hospitals, uh, pharmacy, community services, every way in which you uh, receive your healthcare in the future. And AI, I imagine, will play a role there? Yeah, AI, uh, machine learning. um, AI, I'm not really... I don't know many companies are actually making money of AI um, in terms of, I think, AI in healthcare, if you look at radiology, for example, it um, it reduces the number of radiologists you're going to need because, um, you know, AI can read, you know, high volumes of, of images. And in terms of... Um, AI and machine learning algorithms and the use of it with your data, that is actually going to make a fundamental shift in healthcare. So it'll be AI. Um, I I think there'll always be nurses. Um, There'll always be healthcare delivery. Um, There is AI and robotics in theatres now for knee surgery. So it will come in, but I think healthcare, it's going to be a combination of both. You were saying off air... The Jade Fund does have a bit of dry powder. What kind of company would you love to add to your books? Well, my bias is always healthcare. Um, Of course. So I think you have to look at um, future trends and what's happening in the market at the moment. So um, Jade is very fortunate. We've got a very good pipeline of potential acquisitions. And so it's not only looking at um, good businesses. So... We're looking at about four healthcare assets at the moment in uh, a range of sectors. Um, There's other platforms. Uh, Mental health is a big area uh, of great need, but it needs to be done properly. Um, There are existing um, companies in Australia at the moment, but there are other opportunities out there. So mental health, um, that's just a... Uh, unfortunately a large growth sector but it needs to be done extremely well in terms of assessments and the way people are treated in their home. I think we're looking for high growth, disruptive technologies, one where there's innovation um, and again um, the good use of capital requiring it. In terms of um, software platforms and service I think that's where the amalgamation is going to be. So you know, healthcare cannot afford to continue to have provide services in the hospitals from a capital perspective. So, if you look at RPA, it costs about fifteen hundred dollars a day to keep a patient in hospital. In their community, it's about three hundred dollars a day. 
So there's going to be a fundamental shift in where people are actually going to have that care, depending upon the way in which medical devices are delivered, um, AI, um, telemedicine, monitoring, all these innovative technologies combined will have a huge disruptive effect on the way healthcare is delivered. So it's identifying those and try and put the building blocks together. You can't imagine funding in that space will go up much given our levels of sovereign debt. Yeah. Um, so I guess it follows from that that um, the private sector has to pick up the slack through innovation. Innovation and, and basically improve the healthcare economics, do it differently, save time. Um, if, again, effective use of capital, return on capital, um, keeping people in their own home, Platforms like Mabel, where you're providing um, good care at a low hourly rate. Um, if you compare Mabel's hourly rate, about $34 an hour, uh, I've got my, my parents actually in aged care, their equivalent hourly rate is $80 an hour for the same care in their home, but it's paid through different layers. So I think um, people want better value for money and um, healthcare is ripe for consolidation, disruption with the application of some of these new technologies. I probably should have done it earlier, but um, what's the investment case for healthcare as a sector um, from an investment's point of, uh, an investor's point of view? Um, well, healthcare, as I said, it's a great growth industry, particularly in Australia. You've got the ageing demographic. Um, so... And basically, the baby boomers are prepared to pay for healthcare if it's not reimbursed from the government from a regulatory perspective. So people will pay for more innovative and expensive treatments. So there's a large market there for healthcare. It's recession-proof. If you hurt your knee or you hurt your eye, if you um, want to go back on the golf course, um, you will actually pay if you're not covered by private health insurance. So people can afford to pay um, for healthcare if it's not covered for uh, by the government or the he private health insurance. Accessibility is very important, timing, and um, the investment proposal in healthcare is you can get very good returns over sustained periods of time. If you look at the um, healthcare um, organisations over a period of time, particularly in the private markets, um, most of the private equity firms in Sydney have done very well out of their healthcare investments. Okay, let's tie this off with a bit of an elevator pitch now for the Jade Fund. Um, why should investors consider it? And what kind of investor does it suit? I think it... Um, so for people out there that have got a minimum of $25,000 who want an exposure into a private equity class um, with experienced managers... Um, They've been able to execute and deliver over um, the inception of the fund, a 19% return. Um, we're available and accessible. We're very transparent in our data, happy to share uh, information um, with them. And I think that's very important for investors, particularly in this market. Um, and we partner with companies that they probably wouldn't get the opportunity to invest with uh, in their own rights. So... Um, these private companies uh, 
I don't like to use the word exclusive, but it's providing them to an asset class that they probably wouldn't have on their own. And unless you're in one of their big, you know, investment banks, unless you're in that high net worth client basis, you actually probably wouldn't get much opportunity to this type of investment. Um, there are some risks, though, to these kind of assets. Do you want to just run through them? <laughs> there are risks with every asset of course. in investing. Um I mean, we've had an 18% return, as I said, over the last uh, four years. Um, all the all the Jade directors are actually invested in this themselves as well. So let's put that on the table. Uh, we're all uh, quite heavily invested in the fund ourselves, so we're not asking them to do anything we wouldn't do ourselves. Um, and from a risk perspective, I think it's far less risky than the listed markets at this time. You've got two experienced people working on the boards, aligned with the founders. Sure, you're going to have your difficult and challenging times, um, but it's how we manage through that at the time. So um, we're backing ourselves. I mean, 18 or 19% um, annualised is extremely attractive. Yep. In this new operating environment, do you think, are you optimistic about achieving that kind of figure? Always optimistic. <laughs> Um, I, I think the question is being realistic. And I guess when you're realistic, you've got to consider the um, the valuations and the disciplined approach to actually acquiring those assets um, at the right time. So it comes down to one of the points I raised earlier, the expectations around the valuations of those assets and not being tempted to overpay and... Um, you know, be more disciplined in your due diligence. Look at your your growth, um, and be realistic on your growth expectations. Jane, we always finish these interviews with a couple of favourite questions. Um, hypothetical, bit of a thought experiment. Question one: What's one thing investors are getting wrong about today's markets? I think in the markets today, I think if people um, are expecting what happened in the past to be the future um, is one of what, one of the risks, and you've got to protect your downsides um, in your whole investment portfolio. So I think you've just got to be aware that this market is volatile, it's changing, and actually nobody knows what's going to happen. But within the companies, and particularly our portfolios, it's about generating um, your ARR um, and basically keeping a focus on your basics within the business so you can adapt and flex. But manage your, uh, manage your risks and protect your downside um, is key to getting through this volatile time in the markets. Question two. Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your career? Um, what happened and what did you learn from it? Oh, oh, well, I've had a few big wins and I've had lots of failures. Um, so I think um, in terms of wins, um, I was the co-founder for the first surgical consolidation in Australia, which was ophthalmology. And that... Um, lessons learned from that if you start with smaller companies and build and consolidate it's I think it's a much better platform than buying a big asset because you can consolidate get leverage on the way up and create greater value we um, 
we basically um, established that in 2001 and 2004. We, um, we basically did a five times multiple. It was backed by AMP, Marcus Darville and Greg Smith, who were with uh, Quadrant and Champ now. Um, that was very disciplined, very focused. It was a winner. We learned lots of lessons from that. Uh, I then was involved with uh, Genesis Care, which in the very early days... And then I moved off to another consolidation, which I won't say which specialty it was in. However, that was an absolute disaster. And the reason why that one was a disaster was um, there wasn't equality in the doctor contracts. And these doctor consolidation and healthcare models, um, you've got to look at what motivates um, the doctors, particularly around service industry. There were different contracts. Um, different doctors got different values for the same businesses. And that inequality was wrong. And, um, you know, you've got to be really upfront, very transparent. And that wasn't a great success. However, I probably learned more through that failure, um, through um, looking at legal contracts and key principles around that was that if you're doing consolidation, you have to have consistent contracts, consistent valuation and the same disciplined approach and treating them evenly. Um, and then another failure I had was thinking that going with a big US healthcare company, selling my first business to them was a great thing. And then... Um, Ended up as part of an FBI investigation, but that's another story in itself. Let's go into it. <laughs> uh, no, basi basically, it was uh, I sold I sold my company to them, and I had uh, it was an international in international company, healthcare, Philippines, um, the Emirates, New Zealand, Australia, and basically it was falsifying revenues, and just because somebody is listed on the NASDAQ and um, um, perceived to be highly successful, ended up with the CEO going to jail, CFO pleading guilty, um, and the key leadership team going to jail in the US. So Sounds like Enron. <laughs> it was a healthcare Enron of its day. Um, so I think that's why extremely good governance is important. Ethics. And as I said earlier, it's making sure when you go into any commercial relationship with founders that you are clear, upfront and transparent before you sign that shareholders agreement. In hindsight, were the red flags there that you should have seen um, or was it just well hidden and, you know, you were, you were not in a place to, to see it? No, I was, uh, I mean... These guys were all billionaires in their own right. Um, you know, it was literally the big office. Your job is to put more dots on my global map. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, right you know, out there. You know, it was Birmingham, Alabama, at USA. Uh, I was quite naive then, obviously. Um, but no, there was no, it was, it was professional. You know, they had all the top bankers. Um, highly regarded, you know, six Learjets in the portfolio, um, turned over six billion in 1999. I mean, it was a, it was a large, highly regarded um, healthcare company. Wow. Governance, governance and governance is what I would say. 
And due diligence, due diligence, due diligence. Absolutely. <laughs> Even if it is a big check. Final question, and again, purely hypothetical. Um, but if markets were to close tomorrow for five years mm. and you could only own shares in one company, uh, listed or unlisted, which company would it be and why? That's a very good question. Um, well, can I ask for two companies, please? Um, two companies, um, it would probably be Mabel in the private space. And I am a private shareholder in Mabel as well as the Jade Fund. I was invested in Mabel before. And that's because it uh, it's on large, large growth trajectory it's a disruptive technology it um, is very positive I believe for society and is actually making a difference and I think if you're offering great service a great product in a great health economic environment and it's a good value proposition for everybody in Australia um, then the returns will follow so that would be um, in the in the public space and then in the um, uh, that would be in the private space. And then in the public space, I've worked in breast cancer for the last 20 years, so um, I'd be involved in a, a company relating to breast cancer. So they're the two. And I think strong growth, disruptive technologies, um, get great product, great service, and the dollars will follow. Jane, thanks so much for joining us on the Rules of Investing. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode today with Jane Shaw. If you did, please give it a like and don't forget to subscribe to livewiremarkets.com for more free content like this. I'll see you next week.